Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. I am Ross Hillier, your host. Today, my guest is Eric Kahn of a couple of different podcasts, actually, that we go over and talk about. Uh, but his most recent one is the Wilderness Warrior uh, podcast. And it's more of an outdoors hunting based, uh, but it's made for men and why it's important to have and get men in the wilderness and the physical, the mental, the spiritual changes that happen when men are in the wilderness experiencing hardship and all of the good things that come from connecting with nature. And he also has a podcast card called Hard Men, which is uh, bringing biblical masculinity back. And uh, it's also a great podcast as well. Go check out both of those. Uh, our context in our conversation today, we talk a lot about his new project with Wilderness Warrior and why the need to start this and his background with hunting and uh, outdoors and the experiences that he shared with his father and that he shares with his sons and the generational aspect of of teaching through nature. And it's a really cool conversation. And it's actually pretty funny because about three quarters of the way through this conversation, Eric just decides all of a sudden he's going to take over the show and interview me for 15 minutes. So uh, it's pretty funny and it's uh, a fun conversation nonetheless. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it was a good time to talk to him. And before we get into the episode, you already know what's coming up. Go actually go now. Do it before you listen to the show. It'll take you like five seconds uh, and rate, review, subscribe the show write a nice little, you know, uh, review on there. It can be a, just a sentence that says, you know, the sound quality is good. 
you know, it doesn't really matter. It's it's a five-star review and it makes the show be seen and uh, grow organically. I'm not paying for ads or anything like that. So anytime we get new listeners, it's because people like you are sharing the show with your friends and family. So for those of you that do it, I am more than uh, humbled by that. And I thank you for that. It's awesome that we can grow the show and I'm going to keep doing it regardless if I've only got two people listening. So um, that's going to be it. Here's the interview with Eric Kahn. All right, welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. I am Ross Hillier, and my guest today is Mr. Eric Kahn. Thank you for hopping on, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've been going back and forth trying to get this thing nailed down for a little while, so I'm glad we were able to make it happen today. So um, you have several projects, which uh, I've been following for probably about a year now. started with just your writing um, on your on your website was how I found you. I'm not even rem- I can't even really remember how I came across the page. Someone probably shared something, and I opened up an article. But uh, you now and, you, and then you had the Hard Men podcast. Now you have this new project called Wilderness Warriors. So you got a bunch of stuff going on. So I kind of want to know just a little bit of background. Um, what brought you into all these media types, and what kind of drove the mission of what you're writing about and, and doing your shows about? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, a lot of it um, is sort of, I've always been a kind of guy where I want to diversify what I'm working. You know, never have all your eggs in one basket. And so I've always got uh, side hustles and stuff that I'm working on. Uh, My main career profession for the last decade has been working in the outdoor firearms hunting industry. Um, I've worked on the digital side. I've worked on the print side. I've worked on the TV side. Uh, for most of the major publications. And kind of through that, I was honing my skills in, in, you know, the outdoor space. And from that, I said, you know, it would be really cool to do stuff that I want to speak to and I want to say that just a lot of these brands are are not going to be able to do. So they're not going to speak to masculinity. And that's just a core passion of mine. Um, As I looked out at the culture and I was like, man, we just have a, a dearth of like robust masculinity. And we have a lot of guys too who are crying out for it. But because of the way society is and because of the political correctness and all that stuff, you know, your main brands are not able to talk about gender, sexuality, masculinity, manliness, uh, or any of those things. And so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to do it on my own. So originally I started the Hard Men podcast. Um, I think that one is more just like just masculinity, you know? And, um, but then after a while, I was like, you know what? The thing is, I love hunting and I love the wilderness and I'm also passionate about that. And so they were just kind of these two different circles. And eventually my, I do the Wilderness Warrior podcast with my friend, Dan Burkholder. And eventually Dan and I, we just talked about it for a long time. And finally we were like, we need to do this. Like, whether it makes money or doesn't, um, it's a passion of ours. And we want we really want to help other guys uh, get into wild spaces, experience nature, hone their masculine competencies. And I think the cultural moment was right, uh, for really for both podcasts, but just realizing like this is the year to start something. It's not the year to hunker down in your shell and say, well, I'm just you know, life's hard, so I'm just going to give up. But this would be the year I see guys actually coming awake. Um, guys are saying, man, I need to be competent 
And that includes physically. And that includes uh, being able to obtain my own food somehow. Like the world is changing and, and we need to respond to it. So yeah, that was kind of, uh, with both shows, it was like, how do we get both those people? And, and hopefully right. we've done that. It's super interesting because I think that was one of the main things that in conversations I've had with guys that have messaged me looking for coaching or that kind of stuff, that was one of the main drivers in the last 12 months of why that like why they reach out or why they started following me is it's and it's the same thing with you know acquiring your own food right you don't know until all those things go away what you lack yeah in in skill or in or in lifestyle things and when all that's taken away from you you realize how dependent you really are on other people for basic needs you know not even just like luxury type things i mean even like food you know, we don't, and, and the the stupidest but most perfect example is like the whole toilet paper thing from last oh, almost yeah. a year ago now. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, like, dude. got just a, the, a sniff that like things might be going south and there just mobs of people running out of stores of toilet paper because they're freaking out and they don't have any yeah. kind of preparedness or backup plans. And that just kind of cascaded this whole concept. And, and you know, it was kind of cool for me to see like the number one and number two Google searches were like urban gardening and like how to make sourdough bread and like all these yeah. things. Like when people are stuck at home, it's like, I have to learn how to be self-sufficient and, or, or at least become less dependent right. on other people. Right. Not even if the, you know, cause it's not super realistic for everybody to be like, I'm going to go off grid and just be completely on my own and all this kind of stuff. But you can always take steps to be less dependent. Right. And so, with the wilderness warrior thing, I think that's a really, like you said, it's kind of like that sweet spot where uh, that's something that people are definitely, and men specifically, are definitely needing and looking for right now. So how do you guys with the show approach that and then couple it with like the masculinity avenue, like those two things going together? Yeah, in, in many ways, I mean, your your points are exactly right. Like with the toilet paper, you realize that the supply chains were just uber fragile, the things that we take for granted, like one, you know, kind of lightweight in terms of pandemics, you know, one lightweight virus and everybody's losing their minds and we have to wear face diapers and, you know, it, it just gets absolutely crazy. And then, and so then I think people were realizing like, okay, we need to, you know, we need to have a better self-sufficiency. Like our load for self-sufficiency right now is basically zero and so we've got to create that space in our life. So that, tying that into the Wilderness Warrior, I, I really think, so my background, I'm an Eagle Scout. And I love scouting and the original model for what it was. It was basically like Baden-Powell and these other guys in England and elsewhere saying, okay, look, we're in an industrial society where people live in cities and they work in factories and that's like their only skill. We need to teach them things like virtue and morality and not tying. And so they kind of created this organization and then they said, this is like a gateway into a world of competency. And so I would never allow my kids to be a part of Boy Scouts anymore because of everything that's happened with that organization. So I said, well, you know, we really need something different. So that was really the other side of it was, Wilderness Warrior is really designed ultimately to be able to create local groups of, and gangs of men 
who can really disciple and train their sons and, and do this in a context of other men. There's not women involved. Uh, men need spaces where it's just men. Um, you'll be able to talk differently to each other. You'll be able to experience life differently, push each other, joke with each other, haze each other, um, do all those things in the context of men. So we really wanted to, you know, launch into that. It's It started with a podcast and website, and then we kind of had the plans to grow. But fundamentally, it is about this. Like, how do we give men who are, you know, a lot of guys are interested in the wilderness at some level because it's like in the soul of men, right? You read about T Teddy Roosevelt, and even if you're not a hunter, you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty badass. That guy's pretty cool. I kind of like that. But then how do we how do we make it so that, you know, we're talking about everything from your body, your physical strength to, uh, you know, Dan, Dan and I are both into gardening and, you know, raising our own hogs and chickens and all those things. How do we tie it all together in a way that's exciting to actually talk about it? And I think the wilderness is one of those ways because it, it holds an allure for men. And not only that, it is completely... It'll win every time. The oh, nature yeah. will nature will always always win, and it's completely unforgiving. So, in terms of a setting to be sort of like a crucible of sorts, right? It's the it's the perfect setting for it because there's just things that you will experience out in nature in the wilderness that are you can't replicate in any right. other environment. Yeah, that's so huge, and I think like one of the things that we've really talked about is you know, and this ties in with my other podcast, Hard Men, but basically we're trying to create hard men. And a wilderness is one of the best places to do that because you don't you don't create hard men in soft spaces. And so part of the problem with men today, myself included, is like you sit at a desk, even if you work from home and you have opportunity to do other stuff, but you sit at a desk all day under artificial light and you don't move your body and then you get like decrepit and you don't know what to do about it. I mean, the other day I was changing ball joints on, on a vehicle and like the next day I was like, you know, I lift weights and run and all these things. And I was like, man, my functional strength is really lacking because like my forearms, my hands were so sore from turning a wrench all day. And it was just a reminder, like we really need this. And so again, I think that's what the wilderness is, is for in large part. Um, it's, it's strange in our culture it's a historical anomaly, but you actually have to go and find difficulty, right? Like you could literally, you could like never lift a finger ever. And many people don't and make it through life and make it through your day. Um, but I think what I've always aimed at is, yeah, but don't you want more than that? And I know me as a man, I want more. And so I'm going to go to the wilderness. That's where I found it in hunting is like, wow, this is really challenging my body. As you said, it's it's very unforgiving. The The beauty of the wilderness is it's kind of like a, a drill sergeant. It just doesn't care how you feel. You know what I mean? Like, And there's no faking it. Like if you got a 10-mile hike up a mountain, there's no – like on a treadmill sometimes, you know how like if I got a 20-minute run, I get to minute like 17, and those are supposed to be like my high-intensity intervals at 18, 19, and 20 – and right. I get to 18 and I'm like, well, that's good enough for today. But if a bear is chasing <laughs> you, it's back like, down. <laughs> yeah. if the bear is chasing you, it's like, no, you're going to level 15 and you're not stopping until you survive. And that's good exactly. for men. It's good for men to experience that.
I, yeah, I completely agree. One of the things that I, and I mentioned it to you before we hit record, but one of the things that I love to take that hard men concept a yeah. step further is you write about, and you have an, an episode and on both podcasts, I believe, talking about men becoming dangerous and why it's right. important for men to be dangerous. So can you elaborate on like what you mean specifically by that and kind of how, how do we become dangerous in the sense that you're talking? Yeah, so what, what originally struck me uh, on this topic was, uh, I believe I was listening or reading some Jordan Peterson. And he was talking about the best of men, like virtuous men. And really just that the best of men and, and men of virtue, men who you would say are really good, they have a capacity for violence and a capacity for danger. And... I think I had seen that and then I was reading later in Lord of the Rings uh, where Gimli, he says to Gandalf, he says, I thought Fangorn was dangerous. And he's like, oh my gosh, this guy's dangerous. And Gandalf has this, this long quote that's pretty popular, but he basically says, yeah, I'm dangerous, you're dangerous, all men are dangerous. The question is like a sword. How do you wield it for good or for evil? And so what I saw happening in the culture opposite to this was really that the culture tries to make men good by making them soft, by declawing them, by taking away things like sexual potency and powerful bodies. It's like if we can just neuter men and make them just weak and apathetic and, you know, all these things, then, you know, maybe that will make them good. Because the reality is you do when men don't have a mission, you really do have a problem of masculinity. You know, there's a reason that most of the, the people in the prison system are men. Most of the people who commit homicides and crimes are men. And I would say it's basically because men don't have a mission. But the solution isn't to, to soften those guys. The solution is to give them a mission and give them a purpose and harness their dangerous capacities for good. And I would always, again, equate it to like a weapon you know, over and over in scripture, it's interesting because we're told that men are like weapons. Like we're just compared to weapons. You know, your children are arrows. Um, the, the, that's not like a game of like archery in the backyard. That's like, we're going to go kill the enemy and your kids are going to do it. And, you know, men being, you know, I was just reading this morning in Ecclesiastes that men are like knives and you can, you can work with wisdom and that's like being sharp. Or you can use more strength, but you're being dumb. Um, and so, just this thought of like, well, how do we how do we help men become dangerous in the right way, but then to be like hyper controlled? And one of the things that always gets brought up when I talk about these things is, yeah, but Jesus was meek. Yeah, but on the Sermon on the Mount, we're told to be meek. And what I what I did is I went back and I I looked at that word, and Preus, the word for meek, uh, actually is related to meeking a warhorse. It's what would be done in like the Roman legions with a warhorse. Warhorses were unbelievably powerful, smart, intelligent, crazy, amazing animals, especially in like Rome. And what was happening in, in Greek and then Roman culture, what was happening when, when we're told that, you know, the meek shall inherit the, the earth. We're told we're basically being told that something that is really, really, really powerful is under supreme control and can be used for the right purpose. 
we're not being told that something is weak, gentle, somehow, sometimes how that gets translated. Um, so like this nice guy um, who, who never, you know, I always think of like uh, in Back to the Future, um, uh, what's Marty's dad's name? Total nerd. George. George, yeah, George McFly. George McFly. Like, well, yeah. Marty, I don't know. <laughs> and he's just a total, he's a total puss, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, that's not what is meant by meek. What is meant by meek is like a, the gladiator, you know, somebody who is, he doesn't kill everybody. He doesn't just walk around in the marketplace swinging his sword and just maiming people left and right. He's a man on a mission, but he's very, very dangerous. So that's essentially what we try to do uh, in wild spaces. Um, is help men, look, you have to be dangerous in order to conquer them. You have to know how to use weaponry. You have to know how to take a life, cut a throat. It's it's, it's all vital and essential. And those things play in the real world as well. And in the hunting world, I've, I was actually, I've had a couple of guests now just in talking about, and it's always interesting to hear everybody else's experience with that moment of hunting, right? The right. The actual moment of the pulling the trigger or loosing the arrow, that ultimately is going to end the life of another living thing. Yeah. That is not something, and this is, I think, you know, and, I've, and we've talked about this before, but it's something that gets misconstrued about hunters. It's like we're just, and like you said, just these wild killers, right, that just have no, they're reckless abandon and they just love killing and all that kind of stuff. And in hunting specifically, like, those moments, most hunters will tell you, like, they don't actually enjoy the moment of killing the animal because they understand what it means. And it's like the taking of a life is not something that's like some happy process, right? It doesn't matter what it is, but it's the, the process of the whole experience and what that whole experience means and the connection to the animal and to nature and all this kind of stuff that makes it in its, in its sustenance, right? So you're getting food and all these kind of things from it. So it's like, it's, it's all about the larger picture, not just like that single moment where you, pull the trigger and now the thing is dead. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that is so true. I would say, you know, obviously there's many people across history in the world who, who have hunted many religions, but I would say fundamentally like those moments are and hunting as a whole, but then particularly those moments of taking the life, it really is hunting as a religious experience, whether you're a native American, um, they viewed it very religiously um, you can go to Europe and they have, there's all these rituals around hunting in Europe, even to this day, um, where you're honoring the life of, you know, you take a little branch and you put it in your ear and you're signifying and you put part of the branch in the animal's mouth and you're wishing the animal on the next, you know, on, on its next stage of its journey to have a great feast. And I think what people often don't understand is all of that. You can't really know that from reading about it or watching about it or, you know, just imagining in your mind what it's like, but, um, yeah, it is, I don't know. I've, I've killed a lot of animals, um, been privileged to do a lot of hunting and yeah, every single time it's not like the first time I killed a cow, I think that was my first big game animal was a cow elk. And I was like on the point of tears, you know, um, just, I pulled the trigger and, uh, you know, the cow kind of like goes down and, and they have like their death struggle is basically they're spitting blood and their lungs are filling with blood. And, um, I was concerned about it until 
really the like the rancher that we were hunting with, he knew a lot about the local area in, in Western Colorado. We we're this is where the Ute Indians were, same as Utah. And so there's actually, if you go high enough in the mountains, there's old hunting camps. And he knew about them. And he could, I think he could kind of see what was going on with me. And he just took his hand and he dipped it in the elk's blood and he just like touched my face. And he, it was a very powerful moment, you know. And he looked at me and he was like, you're a man now. And, um, you know, talking about like man needing rites of passage and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just, it's so powerful. I, slitting the throat of elk, deer, I've done that. Um, it makes you very mindful. Like when you buy a steak from the grocery store, not saying there's nothing, you know, there's anything wrong with that. But when you do it, you just don't have the same level of appreciation when you killed it, you know? And so I, I think it's actually good for people, uh, men in particular, to experience that, to be proficient in it. I always think of it like, kind of the high priestly ministry in the Old Testament. Like this is what they were doing on a daily basis. Bring the cow in, cut its throat, cut it up. And ultimately the really crazy thing is like we're told in the New Testament that that's what's happening to us. We're being cut up, we're being burned on the fire and we're ascending uh, to the heavenlies. So it's like, no, again, no matter how you look at it, the hunting and the taking a life of an animal is this tremendously religious experience. And again, like every culture has noticed that. Yeah, it's it's super interesting to look at, and because I've done a little bit of like just reading and research about uh, the ways that different cultures experience that that right. moment, and uh, I think I've mentioned it on I think I mentioned it on one of these episodes. Now I can't remember if I did, but there's a book called Land of the Spotted Eagle, and it's by Luther Standing Bear, who was uh, a Lakota chief back in the early 1900s. And, but it, he, he wrote several books and he was, it was interesting because his life is, his life is amazing, but because he became, he went to university, he like traveled internationally, but he still was very tied to his roots as, as a, as a member of the Lakota tribe. And so the book, The Land of the Spotted Eagle talks a lot about like how they actually raised children. And the processes that they that they went through to teach young boys, and like they started training them with uh, with bows and arrows and all that kind of stuff when they were three, four, five years old, and it's it's really interesting and it's kind of a side tangent. But one of the things that they did was they believed that uh, it required so much work to raise one child that that families were not you know not forbidden, but you know kind of frowned upon having more than one children in a five year span. So they, because it took so much work to get to that, to where that son or that daughter is five years old. Now they can move on kind of the next stage. Now you can have another one because it's going to take that much work again. Interesting. And it's, it's a super interesting concept, but it, it, he talks a lot about um, just the experience of when they start them hunting and it starts, you know, small game and that kind of stuff to get them accustomed to that process before they move out into these hunting groups with deer and buffalo and all that kind of stuff. It's just a cool read to hear like yeah, from first person experience how they go through it. So I would definitely recommend if you to, to read that book and everybody else because it, it was awesome. Um, yeah, that sounds great. It, it's super cool. And the detail he goes into, it's, yeah, it's pretty rad. And I love, like I said, the, ch the, the way they talk about child rearing is super interesting. And like <laughs> some random things, like I've been a proponent of the ice and the cold baths and all that kind of stuff for a yeah. long time, right? 
And they would literally like when baby was born, like freshly spit out, like they cut the cord and they go dunk the thing in a river. Like the first thing, like ice You're going to be tough. <laughs> exactly. Like that's the your first experience in this world is getting plunged in the cold river. And yeah. like, that's just part of the culture. It's just so cool to read a lot of that stuff. Cause I mean, like you said, we've, and it, and it ties back into just culture in general right now, we've removed ourselves so much from that. Even if we're not of Native American descent, we were at one time, we were all very wildernessly, you know, ac- like acclimated, I guess. You oh, could yeah. Say. You know, well, that was just part of our lives. Yeah, dude. And it's crazy because you think about like th- that Native American approach to parenting, Sparta would have been very similar. Like we yeah. need to introduce our kid to really hard, miserable things so that they know how to be warriors and fighters and survivors. Today, it's like the exact opposite. You know, in our culture, we're like, how do we make it as safe as possible? How do we make sure that they never have pain? And it's ultimately because we view ourselves and our kids as fragile. Like we're all just these really fragile emotional pots. And if you even, if you even bump them against the counter, they're going to break and you'll never be able to fix it. And I think older cultures, ancient cultures understood that people are anti-fragile People can endure incredible things, but they're not going to be able to do that unless you continually subject them to difficulty, hardship, et cetera. That's, that's how you train them. And kids too. Like, I mean, just, yeah. I mean, the, the, when speaking on the anti-fragile part, like I'm fairly new into this world because my son's almost two and he's the first. Right. So like, but just the things that we're experiencing right now with him, I'm like, this kid is so tough. And, and and just, you know, it's small things right now, but I can already just see that, and I've got, you know, young cousins and stuff, but we tend to think that, like you said, they're just little porcelain bowls, you know, and, you know, from a physical standpoint, but also from an emotional standpoint. Right. I mean, there's things that you got to do to talk, to get through messages certain ways, right? Like just in terms of where they are developmentally, right. but they can handle a lot and a lot more than like you said, what we give them credit for. And yeah, it, it's, it's so interesting for me right now to be like in these beginning stages of it, to see it and be in the middle of it versus just like these last handful of years, everybody's always complaining about kids. Like, oh, these kids are so soft and like all this kind of stuff. And now I'm in the middle of it. I'm like, man, it's totally just environment, you know? Oh yeah. Well, it's environment and it's also this is what always upsets me is like the boomer generation are like, oh, millennials are so soft. I'm like, well, they're your kids. <laughs> who raised them. <laughs> yeah, who raised these kids. And a lot of it was, a lot of it is like very simple when you look back is like the greatest generation who raised the boomers, they were very, very like stoic, but in like an emotionally distant way. And so then the boomers were all feeling unloved and they didn't have enough words of affirmation. And then like the 70s hit with all the, 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 the therapy and therapeutic approach to psychology. And it was like, you know, go back in your past and daddy will tell you that he loved you. Like all that stuff's important, but they made a huge deal about it. And then it became like everything was self-esteem. You know, you're special because you participated. I mean, I remember some of the things, and I don't know how, like I, you know, I just kind of lucked out, but. My dad wasn't that way at all. Um, we would, I remember like playing hockey. Uh, me and my brother both played ice hockey and like we, we played and we'd finish a game 
And my mom would be like, I'm so proud of you boys. And my dad was like, yeah, kind of sucked though. For what? I mean, <laughs> did you see that time when you tried to skate backwards and make that hip track and you fell on your face? That was embarrassing. And I was like, wow. But now I look back and I'm like, I'm so appreciative that dad wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, dad wasn't going soft on me. It, it wouldn't have done me any good. Well, I just told you the truth. Yeah. You know, like that's, I, and that's, I think part of it too is it's, it's almost kind of like a lying by omission thing that's <laughs> happening so much right now is like refusing to just tell kids what's, what's going on. Right. Thinking that that will protect them rather than letting them process things and, and begin to understand the world around them. Because right. if you do that for too long, when all of a sudden you're no longer around and they're th or they're, they, they move out and they're thrown into the world, <laughs> it's complete opposite of what they've been told it was their entire life. Yeah. And I, I think the huge part of that too is, you know, we're talking about like boomers who are, you know, just like kind of bitching about their kids, I guess, <laughs> or anybody for that matter. Like yeah. Jordan Peterson said this in 12 rules for life and it was great, but he's like, look, don't raise kids that you dislike. Mm. And so first of all, it puts the onus on you. Like if your kids are dislikable, it's probably because you made them that way. <laughs> and it was part of your training and your environment. And I just like, I watch, you know, my kids are a little older now, but I watch young, young parents and it's like a kid is throwing a fit in a store and they're like, well, the kid's like one and a half. He can, he can't even speak English. Right. And they're like, well, little Johnny, do you feel like punching me right now is a good, oh, you do. Oh, you do. Okay. Well, maybe we could rethink the, and I was like, no, dude, when I was a kid and like parenting, like my butt got paddled and it was good for me. Like nobody put up with that crap. You know, I remember times like talking back and it's like, yeah, you were going to feel the wrath of God and that was good. And you learn how to respect authority and adults and, you know, all those all those sorts of things. So what I always tell to parents and, and men especially is, look, don't get mad at your kid when he does something you don't like. Don't get mad at him. Teach. So one of the things I've advocated on the Hard Men podcast especially is, hard, you know, hard men should speak plain truth. And this can get misinterpreted as like be an a-hole. And that's right. not what I'm saying. Like, you know those guys who are like, it's like they have Asperger's and they're always just like, I hate you. You're stupid. Mm -hmm. Like word vomit all the time or every word is harsh. And no, but I mean like plain truth can be things like my son shot his first elk this year and I put my arms around him and I was like, Benjamin, I am so proud of you and I'm so proud of the man that you're becoming. Like that's a plain truth. But older generations, like my dad was there and this is just how their generation was. Like, he's looking at me, and I can tell this is a powerful moment for him, too. And he just looks at me, and he's like, things are okay. Mm -hmm. Like, because he, he was never trained to speak a plain truth, like, I'm really proud of you. He, so that's what I mean is, like, speak a plain truth. And then, like, you know, you're going to have all these things, like, with your kids, especially boys, like sexual sins and pornography and like we have this crazy world and the reality is you have to speak very plainly and bluntly on those issues hey man don't do that it's going to destroy your life here's five things you can do to avoid those pitfalls right 
And I, other guys I'll talk to and they're like, you told your 13-year-old that? I was like, well, yeah, dude, that's the world we live in. Like, I, I am he, he's going to be exposed to difficulty, whether I choose it or not. But what I can do is not get mad at him, but I can coach him. I can teach him. And that's that's what being a father is, right? Not this culture of like safetyism where, you know, how do I ensure that my child is never, he never even has to hear opinions, Russ, that differ from his own because that would be doing him emotional violence. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, he needs that. Like people to disagree with and argue with and that's yeah. how you become a man. And oh, man, and the, and the part of with him, with your with your son being 13, at that age, it's so interesting to me too because like people that are saying those things to you, like he's 13, you're telling him like, look at, cultures in the past, even our own, like yeah. 13 years old in, in past years and past centuries and stuff, like you you're are a running a lot of, you're a man at that point. Like yeah. you're, you're no longer a child in, right. in most cultures throughout history by the time you're like 13, 14 years old. And we, and it just seems like we just keep moving that back farther and farther and farther and farther. And now it's like, you know, we have 26 year olds today that oh, yeah. have still never been challenged like, on anything or e- e- like in a in a mental capacity haven't been challenged on their ideas and so it becomes emotional responses because they don't know how to defend their position or what they believe on things it's just shout people down and and challenged physically like they've never been hit in the mouth right. or they've never like had to wrestle or you know like right. anything like that or really just challenged and so just the concept of challenging actually being the good thing. It's just, it makes so much sense to so many past generations, but for some reason, the last 30 years, it's kind of thrown out the window. (laughs) Yeah. Not realizing that, uh, like the furnace is good for you. Yes. You know, you need that. It's interesting because, uh, it's used like the phrase is used, I think twice in scripture. One is Psalm 66 and the other is, I think in the book of Deuteronomy, but um, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it talks a lot about Israel as God's son. And in Deuteronomy, it says, I put my son through the iron furnace, the iron furnace of affliction in Egypt. Like all that, God was like refining a metal, right? And this is what is good for men. So if you're a wise father, you're going to actually put your sons and your brothers and your and your you know your companions your friends you're going to put them in difficult situations to test and prove them and that's going to help refine their character. And you mentioned this but I find this is a good thing for hunting like I can go hunt with grown men and I mean 30s 40s 50s it doesn't matter. Um a couple of years ago we were out hunting and it was just really cold and we had this guy and he was like, the whole time, just like, I'm cold. My feet are cold. Can we just go home? We're not going to see anything. Blah, 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 blah. And I, I was just like, man, nobody has fathered this guy. This is sad. I mean, I remember when I was like seven years old, one time we're, we're in the Rocky Mountains and my dad is like, we're going to climb a 14er today. And you know, like... Today, if you climb a 14er, like all the yuppie city people are like, they got their North Face apparel on and <laughs> $2,000 worth of backpacks and trekking poles. Well, this was a day where like we had clothes from Goodwill 
It was all Army like surplus. Yeah. It was cotton and jeans and like cotton socks and like worn out tennis shoes. And my dad's like, screw it. Let's we're climbing let's a 14er. And I was like, oh, are we going to follow a trail? And he's like, no, let's just go up the side of it. Side hill it. So we climb this thing and we get like three quarters of the way through. And I'm like, this is a different generation, right? And we get like three quarters of the way up. And I was like, dad, you got any water? He's like, no. He's like, all I brought was a six-pack of beer. <laughs> He's like, well, drink up. And so we're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. I didn't know any better. You know, I was like, why am I getting dehydrated even though I'm drinking fluid? I don't understand. So we, we hike all the way to the top, and we get to the summit, and it's all scree filled. You know, you're way above tree line and all these things. And we get to the top, and there's like we're standing at the summit, and then up the face, me and my brother and my dad in like blue jeans and like redneck clothing, we we see this this like mountaineering team coming up one of the faces. Mm-hmm. And they're in like technical climbing gear and they have like the, the flags from the nations that they're from. And they get to the top and they're looking at us like, what are you doing up here? <laughs> And I look back at that. Get here? <laughs> yeah, how did you redneck people even get up here? And I look back at that and I think, my, yeah, that was so good for us. And how many times I told my dad that trip, I was like, Dad, my legs are tired. And this is, I mean, we joke about it as a family now, but it did me good. Dad, I'm tired. And my dad would always say, yeah, you'll be fine. It was like he didn't even care. He just, yeah, you'll make it. Because that's what his dad told him. And you know what the thing is, Ross? Like, we made it. And we sucked it up. And later in life, when you go through adversity, whether it's in the office or, you know, your work, whatever you do, I mean, nobody wants to work with that turd of a guy who's like, Ross, we got to put in a hard day's work. And you're like, oh, but I'm tired. <laughs> like, no, you can't be that way. And the way you don't exactly. get that way is because, again, you've been tested. And it's perspective. Oh, big time. Because... And, and I can think and just in, and I can make a probably a thousand different analogies, but even just in, in athletics, in my sporting career, right. I remember we had like, we had a head coach in football that half the team was scared to death of because he was like the get in your face and yeah. call you names and that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, there were several times I remember like messing up on the field, like I'd fumble and I'd come off the field and he'd literally like body me up and like headbutt me on my face mask and like be yelling at me. And everybody else was like, how are you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then I get to college and I play and everybody's like this, I mean, how do you handle all this? Right? Like what's going on here? Like, how do you just brush all this off? And then I get to college and I had a coach that was similar, but from my experience, not anywhere near as intense as the one I just came from. Right. But the other guys that I was playing with that weren't with me in high school, like couldn't handle this dude in college. And like they're like, cause, yeah, because they had come from coaches that were a lot softer than this guy. And yeah. so like, I'm looking at him like, man, this dude is awesome. Like, I mean, not that I didn't love, I love my high school coach, but like in college, I'm like, this is totally different than what I experienced. And like, like, what are you talking about? Like, he's so intense and he's so mean, like all this kind of stuff. I'm like, you guys, like, you don't even know. <laughs> you don't and know. So it's, but those experiences and those challenges, it just helps you build perspective that like when on that trip, on that hiking trip, like you said, you, you look back on it now and it's like, how did we survive? Like in the moment, you're like, how are we ever going to survive this? 
Right. But then looking back on it now, you're like, think about all the things that that gave me perspective on that came later. Yeah. That could have been the worst thing ever when I experienced them. But then I look back, I'm like, remember this hiking trip? That was way worse than this. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's interesting because I think about, again, from like a either fathering or like discipling training men, it, it's amazing because the, the, the best bonds are formed when there's intense hardship mixed with intense love. So, you know, I think where a lot of people get it wrong is they're like, oh, I'm going to go like expose my kids to like all this hardship and I'm going to be a total hard ass. But then you never, you never tell them how proud you are of them or you never, like I always try when we go hunting, like make something about it fun. So, you know, for my son, you know, we went hunting and it was, there was a lot of brutal days, late nights, no sleep, packing out two elk. No, I'm sorry. Two elk one time and two elk another time. So four elk, he helped in all of it. It's just a lot of suck to embrace. And, um, you know, I would do little things as a father. Like I'd go to the gas station without him knowing it. I'd buy like a mini thing of Pringles because it's like his little kids love junk food, you know. And and we're beating feet and whatever. It's not something that we, we normally have. So we'll get in the truck, you know, and he's all like, oh, I'm just sacked out, dad. I was like, hey, bud, I'm proud of you. Like, he did a really good job. And then I'll, like, pull out that can of Pringles, and he's just like, you know, and I don't know what it is, but, like, just creating fun, you know, creating little things like that that they can can feel loved in the process too. And any man is going to be that way. You know that as, like, a trainer. Like, you can't just be all, you know, all whip all the time. There's got to be moments where you're like, dude, you did it. You know, yeah, I'm stoked. I'm stoked about it. You know, got to show them you. that it's got to show them that it's worth it, right? You know, yeah, it, exactly. It's not just it's not just miserable crap all the time. Like there is rewards along this process. But and that isn't that the crazy thing? Like I was thinking about this the other day with, uh, you know, you and I were talking about like how do you, how do you coach other guys when they ask you like about physical things and how do I get better physically? One of the things that always strikes me is like, okay, you know if I've been like slacking on my eating and exercise, whatever, the hardest thing to convince people is, can you give me like six weeks? Because if you can give me six weeks of like awesome eating, awesome nutrition, awesome working out in six weeks, you will start, you'll start to feel that feeling of like, I feel good about my body. I've lost a little bit of weight. I've just now six weeks in starting to lose weight. Um, I'm, you know, I'm starting to develop some, tone in my arms, whatever it is. But like, it's trying to get people away from the instant gratification, right? The, the difficulty in coaching guys and in, in dealing with ourselves, there was a commercial. I don't know what it was about years ago, but it was this, uh, this larger dude and he's, he goes to the gym and he like, I think he's doing like lap pull downs. He pulls down like twice and then like walks around the gym and then gets back on the scale and it hasn't changed. And he's, he like hits it and then leaves. And I was like, that's pretty much what happened. That's what we think it should be. Right. Yep. But like, how do you, that's my question. I'm on your show asking you questions, Ross, but (laughs) I love it. (laughs) How do you, how do you get people to see that? Like the long-term payoff Yeah. and buy in and stay, stay working hard that whole time until they can see so the buy-in part is interesting because it's honestly not very different than the examples that you were talking about with your son. Right. Like they, they have to, I mean, you've got to be shown 
that there are good things along the process and, you know, rewards along the way that is sometimes different for every person in terms of what they're measuring for progress. Cause it's not always right. weight loss for guys. Um, maybe it's they're building strength and they're trying to improve lift numbers. Right. I mean, you've got to be able to show that there's progress along the way, but the thinking long-term part of it really comes down to how you're actually approaching your goals and how you're setting your goals. Because most of the time, people have a really hard time thinking farther into the future than than really a year. Like you ask somebody to think farther yeah. ahead than a year into the future and they can't even fathom that that time period exists. And uh, I actually just recorded a solo podcast talking about goal setting in general, but it's one of my favorite things that one of my business coaches ever told me was, he said, the most successful people in the world think in terms of decades, Right. Not in terms of even years. So if you're, yeah. if you're looking at like the, the highest of the high performers, they're thinking like, where is this going to be in 15 years? Not yeah. what am I trying to do in the next 90 days or 30 yeah. days, right? So when you, when you approach it with that mindset, when you're going into it thinking it, from a physical standpoint, like I'm training to be able to like go hunt with my grandkids when I'm 70 and still be able to do this rad stuff on the mountain that I could when I was 35, yeah. Like if you're going into it like that, that's going to change how you approach what you're doing today. Cuz oh, you're not mindset-wise, you understand the concept of incremental progress and like trying to just do one thing better every day. And really it all comes down to your habits. Right? You are you are only as successful as the habits that you have every day. Doesn't matter what program it is, doesn't matter who's coaching you, what diet you're on your habits will determine your success or lack thereof. But really the most successful approach that I've found, and a lot of guys have done variances of this, but it's literally just do one thing better today. Like try and get one degree better. Yeah, don't right? change it all at once. Don't change everything. Exactly, because you'll, you'll burn out and you'll be in that situation where you're expecting this massive change because I changed my whole lifestyle in, in 48 hours. I, like, I don't do anything that I did two days ago. And then two weeks into it, you're ticked off and you can't, and nothing is sustainable because you didn't ease your way, like build a system essentially. And now you're burnt out and you've left the gym and, or you're, you moved to a new program because you didn't think the one that you were on works. Like you're like, oh, it's been two weeks. I haven't lost anything. Like can't be, the pro <laughs> it, it can't be the, it has to be the program, right? It, it can't, can't be, be. me. <laughs> well, it's interesting, Ross, too, because th this is something I was thinking about recently that you know how every pretty much everybody in like the outdoor, well, not outdoor, but just like fitness in general, there are outdoor fitness, but it, this is really fitness, any fitness program. Why is it always like 12 weeks, 72 days, 75 days? Like, what is it about? timeframes. So, so part of it, and the reason I asked this question, I remember years ago, uh, my mom worked with a lady who worked with Bill Phillips at EAS back in the day yeah. when they were in Boulder. Body for Life. Bef yep. Before they sold out to Abbott, Body for Life was new. Bill Phillips was training Shannon Sharp and John Elway when they were mm -hmm. winning Super Bowls. So all this stuff was brand new. But I remember Bill Phillips saying that He's like, I feel like the whole fitness industry is a failure because I went to this fitness conference and like everybody was out of shape. Mm -hmm. And so he developed this, you know, I think it was 12 weeks, I want to say. I, I did it 
Um, it was the only thing that I ever did originally where I, I bought into it. I, I think I actually did it twice. So it was like, you know, 24 weeks. I lost like 40 pounds doing it. Um, it, it was really good, but it's also interesting because then I think like how many of these things are actually working? Because most of the people in my lifetime who I've known who are like, oh, I'm on the clean eating or a whole 30 or, and it's always some like, oh no, what you didn't realize is that you're not supposed to eat potatoes. That's what's screwing you. You've been eating potatoes, Ross. There's always something that has to set your diet apart and blah, blah, blah. You can go to the diet section in the stores and they're just chock full of books. My question is, does that stuff actually work? Why do people package it that way? Yeah. What's Some of it's got to be a myth, I think. It's a fun question. Uh, a lot of it, all all of it, let me, let me rephrase this, all of it is a product. Right. right? They're selling and something. And so they're selling something. Because all of them work to some degree. Mm-hmm. Because, because I would say more than 95% of progress in any health or fitness endeavor is adherence and consistency. Yeah. But when you're told on the front end that you're going to get crazy results in 30 days, you know, you're setting up psychologically people to only look at this as a 30-day endeavor to be healthy. And when yeah. they don't look like the crazy transformation in the picture, again, they think it's it's the program is junk, so I got to find another one that's actually going to get me the the results that it says it's going to get me. Because you can't, it, and it goes back to the long-term goal setting thing. Like I am, it's it's really hard if I were to have a, a packaged product to say, take this, pro- take this product and you'll be your healthiest self in, when you're 70. Like, and you're, and you're 30 right now. Like, take this and you'll be healthy in 40 years. Even though that's, right. there's like, there's no product that you can take that, you know what I mean? But just the process of it. So the, it's, it's all coming into the mindset that you're, coming into this with. If you're coming into it looking like I need to lose 10 pounds before my my wedding in a month, you know, if that's all it is, I can put you in an aluminum suit and throw you in a sauna for two hours and we'll like make you cut weight. <laughs> you know, like there are oh, very unhealthy ways. Weight, it's like not going to be all, good for you. <laughs> exactly. Like if all we're looking at is just this arbitrary number on the scale doesn't mean anything, which is funny because one of my, uh, one of my favorite stories ever was from a coach uh, named Max Shank. And he said, I was working with this woman. She was like 125 pounds and she was like pretty fit. Uh, but she wanted to be one, 120. And he's like, okay, why, why do why 120? Like you're, you're in good shape. You're strong. Like you're, you're feeling good. Why 120? She's like, well, I just need, I, I need to be at 120. That's just my number I need to be at. And he's like, so is it just because it's a smaller number? Because if it's a smaller number that you're looking for, we'll switch the scale to kilos. And then now all of a sudden the number that shows up on the scale is 52. Like, is that low enough number for you? Does that make you happy? Like, it's just this weird, it's just this arbitrary number that we've assigned and given this immense value to when really the, the process of becoming healthy, it's just like with anything, like it's the process and the journey in, in it is where all the growth is. It's not this random date that we've picked out in the future. And then all of a sudden we're done. Like it's, it, you never master this stuff and it's because it's a journey thing. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand is like, 
especially, you know, coming off of New Year's, it's like, hey, here's this six-week challenge. Those things are actually really great. I've maybe got a different opinion of them than a lot of people that are in my position because I love them for a lot of people because it's their foot in the door. Some people have like never in their lives even been in a gym. And if something like a six-week challenge is going to get you in a gym and get you doing something for the first time, I'm all for it. Exactly. As long as we go into it with the mindset, like this is the starting point. Like this six weeks, we're still white belts. You know, we are at the very beginning stage of this. You're not going to come into this and get everything you ever wanted in six weeks. And now you don't have to work out again for the rest of the year. You know, and I, so it's, it's all mindset driven, which a lot of times that's really hard for a lot of people to overcome. The mindset, uh, changing habits, um, really getting into the question of like self-discipline. Discipline is like exceedingly hard. Um, but it's crazy too. Like I remember at one point I was like, so I'm like five, eight, I was like 200 pounds, 205 I went to college. I was fatty because I was just drinking and I would eat at Chili's like every day. And uh, surprisingly, Ross, not healthy for you, especially the French fries. <laughs> no and one the tells queso you dip. The queso dip. <laughs> ah, what, what happened? So I got like super fat when I went to college, you know, you're because I was I was a two sport athlete. And then I went to like doing nothing and just eating and drinking all the time, you know. And um, it was interesting because when I started losing weight, it was like, it's like momentum. If you can uh, discipline yourself and you start getting momentum and then you're on a roll. But it was interesting because when I was gaining weight and I was like fat, I remember having like stretch marks on my stomach and I was like, oh, like the lies you tell yourself when you're going in the wrong direction. I was like, well, maybe I hit a growth spurt. Like maybe I'm growing upwards. And I remember I said that to my roommate. I was like, you know, Pat, I think I'm, I hit a growth spurt. He's like, oh, you hit a growth spurt, all right. <laughs> like a horizontal growth spurt. And I was like, you jerk. And, uh, but it's funny too, because then on the flip side, um, I made it all the way down. I was like running marathons and stuff. I made it all the way down. No muscle mass whatsoever. But I made it to like 142 pounds. And so this is like the other extreme. I was like very like vain and like if I put something in my body, like say I went to a party and somebody's like, oh, it's our birthday. You have to try a piece of cake. I was like, ooh. And if I did eat the cake, I would like, I'd be sweating about it. And I'm like, no, when I get home, I'm going to be on the treadmill for two hours. I got to burn that off. And it was like, it was, it was you know, it was wrong and it was vain in the other direction. But it's interesting because when I was 142, I was just convinced. I'd be like, God, look how fat I am. But when I was going the wrong direction, I was lying to myself about like, oh, no, you're good, dude. You look great. And then, you know, you see a picture of yourself and you're like, oh, my gosh. And people, you know, it's just amazing the mental games that you can play with yourself, I guess is my point. So, like, I just want to know as as you're helping people, that's got to be, that's got to be like number one, right? Is like, really how do is. I help I them mean, wrestle mentally? Yeah, it is. And it's, everybody comes in. And I make the joke all the time that I, I chose this path as my vehicle for human development, right? Yeah. I could have gone and been a therapist and done, you know, the same type of work to get people to grow and become more disciplined, that kind of stuff. Uh, I chose the fitness route. Although at the same time, I kind of am an unqualified therapist, you know, because oh, yeah. that's, 
uh, so much of this of of fitness and health in general is like you said that mental game and oh, yeah. so it's i mean you you and it's so much of it has to do with like how you were growing up like what was your relationship with food and like how were you taught how to eat and you know were you active growing up like those things people just don't get rid of in a week and that's you know and it's all comes back to like this instant gratification thing that we were talking about like this whole time right oh yeah and uh when you when it took you 10 plus years to get to the point where you decided you need to make a change it's not gonna go back to the way it was in two weeks or 30 days and so it's just that exactly and 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 that's the biggest switch and once somebody can make that and and be okay with it not just like, yeah, I'm going to start training and do like, but like, they're good with it. Like, I'm in this for the long game now. That's when progress starts like happening like crazy. And like you said, it's all momentum. Because oh, yeah. as soon as you start, as soon as you start and you, and you start feeling good and you, and you recognize like this, I actually feel really good. I'm doing things I wasn't able to do. Uh, maybe I have lost a little bit of weight. I'm getting new pants on now. Haven't right. worn in five years. Like those little things, like it's that big. Just, builds confidence and it, and it keeps and then you want to work yeah and then you're like exactly. it inspires you to like keep eating well okay i got one more question for Hit you ross so one of the things that i found fascinating is like especially my dad's generation so he was i guess in so his college i think he went to college in like 74 so high school 60s 70s um it's really interesting because his generation, his mom is this way. A, a bunch of his siblings are this way. They had this view that like exercise was bad for you and was going to wear you out. And so like when my dad played football in high school, <clears throat> he was really good. Um, and a small town, you know, he he's running like, you know, five minute miles and just, you know, track star and all this stuff. But it was interesting because he was like, oh yeah, our coaches always tell us like, oh, weightlifting like destroys your joints. Weight, lifting any weight will, it'll cause you to bulk up. And I'm like, dad, you were like, I think seriously in high school, I think it was 115 pounds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like, dad, I don't think you're at any risk of bulking <laughs> up. But like they thought if they lifted weights, they were going to be like uh, Brian Bosworth automatically. Right. Uh, you know, a muscle bound meathead. Right. And, and even to this day, like my dad, every time we pass somebody running, on the side of the road, my dad will be like, God, that's miserable. Why did you ever do that? And he'll always tell stories like, you know, we have a treadmill in our house for mainly for interval training. And, um, you know, if he, if he knows that I'm on it or he knows that I do it, you know, he'd be like, I knew a woman who had four knee replacements and it was cause that damn treadmill. And so anyway, and when I ran, you know, they would always be like, you know, that's bad for your knees. And, you know, it's going to destroy your knees. And I was like, well, so is being 400 pounds, you know? So anyway, I'm just curious if you run into this, it seems like they're my, mostly what I grew up with and literature and stuff like that. Like we have a much more positive view of fitness and health. I think culturally, most people would not tell you that fitness is bad for you. By the way, my dad's had like four heart attacks. So I just, and, and it's, I don't even like blame him. I'm just saying like, that was that generation yeah, that was, was like, they thought they, it was yeah. bad for them. Like, so have you seen this? How do you, how do you yeah. deal with that? 
And, and a lot of it is just the information and the education part yeah. of it, because that is part of it too. I mean, right. and, and I'm actually of the idea and, and of the belief that lately, anyways, I've been looking way back, uh, like 100 years ago when Sandow was around and George Hackenschmidt was around. And those yep. guys were like physical culture at the time, right? Um, yep. They were doing things that people just couldn't understand. They're like, but they're they're doing it like this is health. This is what it means to be uh, to have good vitality, you know, have vitality in your life and all these kind of things. And so much of it is just information and the dissemination of that information, because you know, up until the eighties and nineties, none of that stuff. And really, like Joe Weider and those guys that yeah. created the magazines, like that was kind of the first real mass production of you know the golden era guys. You know, yep. even even before Arnold came on the scene, like the 40s and yep. 50s, like Reg Park and all those guys, that was kind of like the first real, you know, start taking care of your bodies, right? And you even mentioned it before, which I think is kind of funny because it kind of, again, comes full circle. Like just our lifestyle created this need for us to create fake work so that we could be strong yeah. and healthy that other people in past generations yeah. just were because that's how they had to live their lives. Like I, I don't do anything nearly as as strenuous in my day-to-day -day life as people 150 years ago. So I have to go out to my shed and like create fake work for myself right. so that I can get that back. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so that's exactly it, became, right. it became more and more important the further and further we get away from it, which is why I think maybe like, you know, in, in our parents' days or grandparents' days, that seemed kind of weird because they were like physical laboring all the time. Yeah, You know what I mean? And so it was just like additional stuff. And like, why would I want to go do that? I'm like, I'm gassed from farming all day. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't need to go work out. And yeah, so you, wouldn't it's just, have, you wouldn't have yeah. done that. It's just totally culture and, and, and time period stuff is based. And one of my favorite, one of my favorite Arnold quotes ever uh, was he was doing like some kind of impromptu posing routine at Venice Beach, right? Just like his, he was there working out and there was a bunch of people watching him. This is after he won like three or four uh, Olympias and like these ladies came up and they were like kind of ragging on him saying like why would you do this to yourself that kind of thing and they said uh, well we'll lift weights we never want to look like you we, we never want to look like you and he looked right at him he's like well you never will and <laughs> like you know like that's the ultimate burn because like some of those people are like really trying to train hard and they're like doesn't matter you're first of all you're not Arnold genetically like the, oh, yeah. all the things came together perfectly for him to be able to be who he was but also you're not going to train five hours a day like he did and you're not going to pay so much attention to your nutrition that it's obsessive and like do all of the recovery things and stretch like there's so much of it that comes into play and so like that one line I've just always loved that he's like well you never will and he's totally right <laughs> nobody ever will nobody ever has since nobody has looked like him since even like with all the big guys in the Olympics since then like his physique you would recognize it anywhere it was like as a silhouette you know yeah it's like unmistakable so it's awesome I, I totally lied to you because I'm going to ask you another question <laughs> We should just release liar. this as like a double episode. Like dude, it's partly episode. your podcast too. Totally good, dude. I, love I was it. like, I'm hijacking Ross's podcast. No, this is fascinating to me. And I love the discussion. But one of the questions I have is, um, maybe like two years ago, um, I got into more of like the, so I was doing like marathons and I was like, I want to add some muscle mass. I got into uh, more of that, I guess, Bodybuilding, powerlifting, I guess. Um, I guess it would be bodybuilding, but like doing Dorian Yates programs. 
Um, and it, it was really good. Um, they're intense, dude, because it's like lifting to failure all the time. So and I was like, Nates, my, my first thought is woof. Yeah. And like, I would watch these videos. I think I was like, I got it through bodybuilding.com, you know, mm-hmm. and all these like, these workouts and it, it, dude, his stuff works. I mean, you will add muscle mass, no question. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that was interesting is at some point I saw an interview he did with Joe Rogan and Joe asked him, he said, okay, magazines, stuff you see in magazines, but especially like, you know how men's fitness forever, they would run like a, um, they'll run a special on, um, what's the dude who played Wolverine, Australian guy. Yeah, Hugh Jackman. And they're like, oh, Hugh Jackman got all cut and svelte. And and Joe was like, Dorian, how is this amazing progress possible? And he's like, steroids. He's like, I I 100% guarantee you I've worked with those trainers. I know them personally. Yeah. The only way that you put on 30 pounds of muscle in the amount of time that they're doing it is... um, Drugs. Artificial. Is drugs. It's artificial. So what's interesting to me about this is that... Oh, and what's the other dude? Uh, played Bane. Hardy. Yeah, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Same deal. He, he's just been felt and amazingly cut in a lot of his movies. Well, these guys become like the magazines pick them up. They become sort of like the this is what you should look like. You know, put this on your wall and this is what you should look like. In fact, when I started lifting pretty intensely like five, seven years ago, I had a picture of Tom Hardy on the wall and I was like, this is going to be me. And maybe that was part of the reason I was never satisfied, you know. Um, But it's interesting that you have a whole industry that is based sort of on a lie to me. Like, yeah. and similar, like Aaron Aaron Donald, he's a a defensive lineman for the the Rams. Rams, Yeah. And um, there's this picture of him in the gym and he's just like flexing with his shirt off. And I was like, dude... That is so steroid. And actually, I have a pharmaceutical rep for an uncle, and he corrected me. He's like, actually, Eric, it's not just steroids. It's steroids and HGH, and they're different. And I was like, oh, sorry. But so it's just interesting. We would say the same thing in the the women's space that so many of the models, like they're starving themselves, they're anorexic. So the people that we're holding up as examples of health and fitness may not actually be realistic, healthy. Um, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about watching your stuff is like you're intense. Like you work out and, and you're doing your kettleballs and you look good with your shirt off, you know, and all those things. But, but I also don't look at you and be like, wow, Ross is juicing. Right. So, like, I feel like if if we're going to be healthy with men about promoting health and physical strength and all those things, we, at some point, right, you have to guard against what's fake and what's yeah chemically enhanced. Because I don't, I mean, I don't think taking steroids is a healthy thing for people. It seems to have right. like the Junior Seau effect. Yeah, um, there's, yeah, there's a lot of bad avenues that those things can open. Yeah. And... It and and I, I go back and forth with it all the time because there are some studies of long term effects of some things, right? Like we know certain artificial things will will alter aspects of our physiology over time. 
at the same sure. time, if some dude wants to just because his whole goal is to get jacked, like, I don't care. <laughs> like, if you if you want to do it, just don't, like, go compete in a sport that says you're not allowed to do it and then lie about it, you know, and yeah, say you're not right. doing it. Like, yeah. that's where you kind of become an a-hole if you're that guy. But if, like, you're right. just some regular everyday dude uh, that maybe is, like, in his late 40s or 50s and his testosterone is pretty low and, like, you maybe need to supplement with some testosterone or, you know, or maybe some HGH or something like that and you can do it medically through the right channels, like, you know, whatever, man, if, if you feel good and you're, and you're feeling healthy and you're, and you're happy with where you are, like, who am I to tell you to not do it? What if I want to supplement with soy? I eat a lot of soy. Is that good for me? (laughs) Am I a soy boy now? That's a whole other episode we could do on that, man. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. But yeah, it's just an interesting, because, and you brought up like the women's side of things too, because, we're constantly told so much in the last handful of years and decades or so that, you know, this negative body image is forced on women through all of these media yeah. channels that they're consuming and stuff. And they don't think that exists for men. But then you it look does. at every superhero movie ever that is consumed by, the you know, the majority of men in this country and worldwide. Well, like, I mean, look at... Captain America, look at Wolverine, yeah. look at Thor, look at like all these guys. You're like, that's what I wanted. And then you get these guys that want to just buy the programs or buy the supplements. And and you may just, not even, like you yeah. said about Arnold, like you may not even have the physiology yeah. to, I mean, to yeah. make that possible. Not only that, but like, okay, Hugh Jackman, I know for his role for Wolverine, he was working out between eight and 10 hours a day. Yeah, I mean, it's he just ridiculous stuff. Yeah, basically he ate nothing but like boiled chicken and broccoli. Yeah, Um, and probably taking a lot of other, like we said, artificial things for that 12-week block leading up to the 22nd shirtless scene in the movie (laughs) that he had to shoot. Man, I'd just be like, dude, y'all can animate that or CGI or something. (laughs) But but it is interesting because the, um, you know, you start getting into all that with like men and how they look. The hunting world is the same. Mm. So in the hunting world... On the male side, you have Cam Haynes, um, yeah. and they're like, Cam Haynes just ran a 157-mile race in two days, blah, blah, blah. How come you're not Cam Haynes? Well, he's well, the perfect is, example of that same thing. Like, nobody's yeah. ever going to be Cam Haynes. Yeah, and a lot of it is, there's multiple reasons, but one is he's completely sponsored, and so he's got Under Armour and all these companies who literally pay him money to work out and take Instagram photos. So... But he's also a super gifted athlete. And the thing is, like, a lot of us, like, we have families. We have, that's just not even going to be uh, realistic. I remember when I was doing triathlon, um, you know, I was talking to a guy who was a triathlon coach, and I was like, I want to do a full triathlon. And he's like, okay, here's the hours it's going to take. And I was like, yeah. ooh, yeah, I don't, I can't I work, do that. I work doing those hours. And he, he straight up asked me, he's like, do you have a family? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you're not doing a full triathlon. Yeah. That you just, you can't, well, unless you can do it for a full-time job. Right. Well, and like in the Cam, in the Cam Haynes example, like I said, he's, he's the unicorn. Yes. Right. Like we, we, and we do this just in general anyways. Like we try to make the exception to the rule, the rule, the rule. Instead of looking at it like, dude, this is crazy cool what this dude can do. Like, he, nobody else on the planet. And he's like, I mean, what? He's in his 50s right now, isn't he? Or like late yeah, 40s, almost 50, something he, like that. He's not and a the young dude. dude. Run, 
the dude runs 20 miles a day and had, had and done it for 30 years. And, yeah, and like, it's he, crazy because I mean, like you meet him and he's like tiny. Yeah, he's a small guy. But then like how many, and you search his Instagram right now and all you see in his comments are people telling you, well, good luck doing this for another year and a half. And like, dude, he's been doing it for three decades. Like yeah. at what point are you just going to accept that he's a freak of nature? And you're right. Most people would probably be in a hospital bed with all kinds of joint issues if they did this for, you know, six months. But he's the freak. I mean, just enjoy that. You can watch someone that is like so crazy gifted in that regard. You know, like I look at him like, that's so cool. I, Dude, I don't yeah. look at him and be like, I, if I'm going to be a successful bow hunter, I got to run 20 miles a day like Cam Haynes. Because well, I know dudes, I know dudes that bow hunt that sit in a tree stand for 14 hours a day. Like they never move their body once and well, they bring home deer every year. Yeah. Know? And it's like, uh, like my buddy, Mike and I were always hunting together and Michael straight tell you, he's like, I'm a fat Mexican. I can't. I ain't no Cam Haynes and Mike <laughs> got crushed in a, he's doing excavation, like buried in a hole. So he has like a fake hip and fake femur mm. and just like, Bionic he's man. like hobbling up the mountain, you know, like, and Michael tell you, he's like, I ain't no Cam Haynes, but I'm getting up there. And like, he'll, I mean, I've seen him like two hindquarters on his shoulders, no pack, no nothing, just <laughs> bomb out of there. And it's like, okay. Well, we can uh, appreciate a Cam Haynes, but that doesn't also mean like you're not a failure if you're not Cam Haynes because most of us aren't right. Cam Haynes. And I run, all of us aren't Cam Haynes. There's only yeah, one. There's <laughs> one dude like that. You know, he's he's a superhuman athlete, and that's that's cool. But I don't have to be him either, just to be successful. No, not at all. I love it. Uh, I want to wrap up with a question uh, for you because I know you're a very reader type guy. Oh, you're um, asking me questions now on your show? That's weird. <laughs> yeah, right. I forgot that what roles we were in for a little <laughs> bit there. I know. Sorry. Um, no, you're good. So what are three books that you've read currently or, you know, are reading currently or have read most recently that you are really into and would recommend? Uh, yeah, great question. Um I or, guess I'll know, just go with ones three, that I, I that I've just hit. So let's see. I've got uh, a stack of books over here. Number Thank one, this is an excellent book. I would recommend. It's Durable Trades, and this okay. uh, was just sent to me by Rory Groves. Uh, why Durable Trades? Well, it, it's basically about like how to, how to build like productive property, mm. um, how to be self sustainable. So he looks at like inflation and how right now in the U.S. economy, there are, you know, job change happens every 2.5 years, which is, it's hard to build a stable life when you're changing right. jobs every 2.5 years. So what Rory does is he actually went through and studied, took like a couple of years to research, what are the trades and professions that have endured since forever? Uh, they've lived through the industrial revolution. They still exist. Mm -hmm. He goes through, he ranks them all, and then he gives them like scores about, you know, things that will always be here. And so if you can develop some of these trades or skills, mm, you're more likely to be durable, et cetera. That's a really cool book. Um, cool. And it's been good. The other one I would say is, I just read is Essentialism by Greg McCown. Ah, yes. Love that book. Uh, really good at helping you as a man, like think through like, okay, I can't do... To quote Ron Swanson, don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. Whole-ass one thing. And so how do you be a whole-asser? And how do you focus in 
on just one thing and do it really, really well. And so he's got a yeah. lot of practical strategies for how to set priorities, how to say no, um, building habits that are, yeah, exactly what you said before, like getting you to your 10, 20-year goals rather yep. than filling your time with just busyness that's not actually accomplishing what you want. Right. Um, so that's really good. And then the other book I'm reading right now, I just got for my birthday, is uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, Man at Arms. The new one? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So I'm reading that. Um, I don't know the ending yet, so I can't really... I mean, well, if it's a bad it ending, I'm going to be like, Stephen, you suck. What are you... <laughs> no, but like, I, I would also say like, I read Gates of Fire, um, mm-hmm. The War of Art. Um, yeah, he's got Turning a ton of pro. books. Turning Pro. Uh, Legend He's of Bagger Vance. Yep. Pressfield's probably my favorite author. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm hoping the ending cool. is good and then I can fully recommend it. But so far, I'm about three quarters of the way through. Excellent book. Um, awesome. Very. He's like a man. You know, he speaks plainly, but it's engaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I, love I love his books. Cool, man. Well, where can everybody find out all of your projects and find you on all of the interwebs and socials and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can send a carrier pigeon. I don't know what that will do for you, but you <laughs> or could where do to it. Send it. <laughs> yeah, you could do it. It won't work, but Find you can Eric. go to <laughs> wilderness-warrior.com. That's the Wilderness Warrior podcast. We've also got other mm. content, video stuff there. And then you can find the Hardman podcast on ericcon.com. It's e r i c c o n n.com. Of course, you can find me on social media as well. Facebook, Gab, Twitter, Instagram, pretty much everywhere. All of them. Yeah. Own it. Own it. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you, brother. Awesome. Thanks, Ross. All right. Thanks for listening today, guys. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Eric. Uh, If you haven't already done so and you want to stay in the loop on what is going on with Nomad Strength, with the podcast, with the coaching programs, uh, with the upcoming courses that are coming out soon, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I've made some mention of those. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening over the late spring and summer months. So if you want to be in the know on all of that stuff, go to nomad-strength.com and sign up for the newsletter. You will be the first to know when all of those things are coming and happening and uh, be the first to jump in on them. So thank you for listening today. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you guys on Thursday for the solo show. Mm